Welcome to the Loves Podcast, everyone. I am your host, Diana, and this is a podcast about love, friendship, family, and lifelong relationships. Our podcast today is about sexuality and sexual desire. Sexuality is such an important aspect of our quality of life, and it strongly influences the happiness of our intimate relationships. Our today's guest is Dr. Lori Brodo. Dr. Lori Brodo is Executive Director at the Women's Health Research Institute, Director of Sexual Health Research at the University of British Columbia, also Professor at the Faculty of Medicine, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UBC, and Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health. Dr. Lori Bredout's research addresses, among others, the topic of low sexual desire and what to do about it. Her findings have improved the sexual life of women all around the world. Too many of us are embarrassed to talk about sexual desire. We believe that low sexual desire is rare, that it's something we can't change, that it means we won't be able to have a satisfying sex life with our partners, and that something is wrong with us. But the good news is all these are just myths. Dr. Brodo brings us practical, science-based, and really empowering information and tools to help us women cultivate our sexual potential. How beautiful and empowering is that? Dear friends listening, I have been part of Dr. Brodo's research on sexual desire, and I can tell you it changed my life. This is why I'm so excited to have her in the Loves Podcast. We would like to share these amazing resources and groundbreaking information with you. That being said, no matter where you are in your life right now, whether you are in a relationship or not, what you will listen to now will improve your sexual life as well as your current and or your future relationships. I really admire and I'm truly grateful to Lori for creating such a safe, welcoming and inviting space for women to share their challenges while providing them with easy, accessible and empowering tools to improve their sexual lives themselves. But what inspires me most is how Lori does all of this with such ease, grace, and charm. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Deanna. What a lovely introduction. So happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. Lori, please tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this type of research, and what drives you the most. I became interested in research at a fairly young age. I've always had a fascination with science and the scientific method and understanding human behavior and why we do the things we do, essentially. But I will admit that as a, as a young person, I never imagined devoting my entire career to understanding sexuality. <laughs> and it's largely because I grew up in a fairly conservative Italian Catholic household, received minimal to no sex education, and if anything, rather negative views towards sexuality, in particular women's sexuality. All of the sorts of myths that now as a professional, I seek to address and correct in the women that I work with. I found myself volunteering as an undergraduate when I was doing my, my Bachelor of Science at UBC, and I was volunteering in a research lab that was devoted to looking at the effects of medications on sexual behavior of rats. I was the volunteer who was doing the injections of antidepressant medications and a few other medications, and then I would measure rat sexual activity. And it turns out, I learned at the time, that there are some parallels in in observing animal, non-human uh, animal sexual activity and the implications that we can draw for humans. But in 1999, the year that Viagra was approved for men, and that's noteworthy because sexual dysfunction in men is also quite quite common, not as common as sexual problems in women. 
But suddenly we had this very effective, relatively low cost, very discreet medical treatment that men could take for their arousal problems. And that same year, there was a large study that was published that found up to 40% of women experienced distressing changes in their sexuality, the rates being far higher, about double the rates that they were in men. So it was this combination of the high rates of sexual difficulties in women, plus the availability of this great treatment for men that steered me to looking into the science of, well, surely there must be something comparable for women. And lo and behold, there wasn't. So I left the rat lab almost immediately um, and then made a shift towards focusing my research on women's sexuality. In part, my early questions were really, you know, what are the causes of these high rates of sexual difficulty and in particular low desire in women? And then it wasn't until some years later that I became much more interested and focused on, all right, now that we understand the main causes, what can we do from a more psychosocial perspective? to improve sexual difficulties in women. Fast forward a few years to my fellowship, which was a few years after my PhD, and I was continuing to do research understanding the causes of sexual difficulties in women, now with cancer survivors. And I also, at the time, became introduced to mindfulness meditation, not for sexuality, but for a completely separate set of issues related to coping with emotions. And it struck me in the work I was doing with the cancer survivors who talked about feeling disconnected from their body, who talked about a sense of mourning the loss of their arousal and desire and former positive and vibrant sexuality and mindfulness, which was really about connecting the mind and the body in the here and now non-judgmentally. It struck me that this might be something that the cancer survivors I was working with might find useful. That's really where it started. And we started experimenting with this amazing group of survivors who taught me more than I taught them. And from there, it's very much evolved over the past now 18 years to where we are today, which is devoting a lot of our research on mindfulness as a way of cultivating sexual pleasure in women. I loved how you said that the cancer patients taught you more than you taught them. And thanks to that, a lot of other people have to benefit. And that, that is really beautiful. One of my favorite quotes from you, Lori, are, get out of your mind and into your body and you will feel pleasure. And this has a lot to do with what you mentioned just before about mindfulness. One of the biggest findings of your research is that stress is the top factor leading to low sexual desire. Can you please expand on that? Yeah, you know, Deanna, one of the the more common questions I get asked as a clinician is, could hormonal factors be the cause of my lack of interest in sex? And hormonal factors are definitely important. So we know that hormones allow important blood flow processes that happen during sexual arousal. An abundant level of estrogen hormones is really important to allow for comfortable vaginal penetration. And that's why with the perimenopause, as estrogen levels decline, that women might experience pain with with vaginal penetrations because the estrogen really serves to keep the walls of the vagina quite elastic and mobile. No doubt hormones are important. But when we look at the main causes of low desire in particular in women, it turns out that stress and other psychosocial factors, low mood, chronic anxiety, negative self-judgment, 
are really at the top of the list. In fact, with regards to stress, the kind of chronic to-do list, the never-ending list of demands on our time and on our brain are a major culprit. In fact, they can be even more detrimental to our brain than a single traumatic event. And the day-to-day grind can be really, really stressful and in a particular way that can impact women's sexuality. So mindfulness, which again is about present moment, non-judgmental awareness, it's not about eliminating the stressors or ignoring them, but rather when one chooses to engage in sexual activity, and I, and I emphasize choice because it's important that we normalize choosing to engage in sex, planning sexual activity, not waiting for some hypothesized sexual desire pixie dust to fall on us before we feel (laughs) in the mood. That's a myth. So I, I do often say, you know, in a bit of a facetious way, if you're, if you're going to be having sex, why not show up for it as well? And what I mean by that is our minds, our brains showing up. And so mindfulness, which is a set of skills that teach us, that teach our mind to refocus on the here and now. And through the exercises that we introduce to women, we teach them how to focus on body sensations, smells, sounds, even thought sensations can be tuned into in the here and now. And that's not the same as getting lost in thought, but rather just kind of observing thoughts from a bit of a distance. And it turns out, and our research has now shown this repeatedly over and over, it works. It's a powerful way. I would argue it's probably one of the most effective ways of refocusing the attention onto the here and now into the sexual context with a partner. And if I remember correctly, Lori, you are not necessarily the type to believe in these types of approaches. Still, the research convinced you as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Deanna. So in, in 2009, which was only seven years after I had started practicing mindfulness myself, studying it, doing the science. In 2009, I was approached by quite a number of different book publishers who got wind of this finding that mindfulness might be useful for sex. And they came knocking on my door. There were 22 publishers. They wanted me to write a book on mindfulness and sex in 2009. And I said, no, we, we absolutely cannot. We don't have enough data to really support this pretty good speculation that it might be helpful. I uh, said no, went back to the research, continued it for another seven years. And it was after the data continued to accumulate, all telling a very consistent story. And by that time, we continued to follow women over time, as opposed to just introducing them to mindfulness, measuring them before and after, and then losing touch with them. It was finally in 2018 that um, I published the book and almost nine additional years of data that went into the book, but also in really convincing me that this was absolutely an effective treatment. We will share the resource and the name of the book at the end of the podcast as well and in the description. Now, this is a podcast about relationships. So I would like to go deeper into that. Relationships are the source of our biggest joys, but also of our biggest challenges. Now, the question is, What relationship factors can affect our sexual desire? So this also has been an area of a lot of scientific study. And sometimes 
just the natural characteristics of being in a relationship, such as duration, can in fact impact sexual desire. My colleague Esther Perel, who's a, a brilliant sex therapist and has written a few books on this topic now, describes this so succinctly, which is with the passing years in a relationship, we acquire stability and security and trust and confidence we can rely on a partner and we sacrifice in return sexual desire. So she fairly cogently points out that desire lives in the unknown, not in security and stability. So it, it's almost the case that a long-term relationship is incompatible with sexual desire. Now, before your listeners take away that dire con conclusion and think that the only way to get desire back is to get a new partner, that's not what no. <laughs> Esther Perel would recommend. That's not what I would recommend, but it does suggest how do you reinfuse novelty and newness and mystery and distance in a long-term relationship? Because that's where sexual desire lives. Relationship duration is a major contributor to, to levels of sexual desire. But there are other relationship aspects as well. Feelings for your partner, uh, definitely trust in a partner, level of attraction is really important. And communication styles. In the very large studies that were done out of the UK, these were very large national probability prevalent studies looking at how common are sexual concerns and what are the major predictors. It turned out that your ability to communicate with a partner about sexuality with minimal embarrassment was a way of protecting sexual satisfaction well into the 70s and 80s and beyond. So there's lots of different parts of relationship that can, can positively and, and in turn negatively impact sexuality. I think women might believe that if my sexual desire is low, does it mean I don't love my partner? Or does it mean that there is no chemistry or attraction between us? Or does it mean that I am that I'm not attracted to my partner? Let's talk about love and sexual desire first. And I think, you know, a clear example to answer that question is we can all think of people we know, maybe ourselves even, where we had sex and desire without love. In turn, you can have love without desire. Low desire is not predictive of low love in a relationship, but often clinically, this is what I hear is a concern, let's say by the other partner, the, the relatively higher desire partner who says, maybe she's falling out of love with me. Maybe she's falling in love with someone else. And that's why her desire is low. And that's typically not the case. It, it, it typically is unrelated to love per se. Now, attraction is important because attraction is not only in the early stages of a relationship, one of the ingredients that draws you sexually to a partner. And over time, changes in attraction can impact one's motivation and desire for sex. But we also need to keep in mind that what we deem as attraction active in a long-term partner might change over the course of the relationship. When I talk to my, <laughs> my teenage daughter and her friends who focus on he's hot, right? <laughs> and that sort of reflection of, of attraction. And then I talk to my 45-year-old friends about this who say, when my partner equally contributes to the co-parenting or the domestic activities of our home, especially now we're recording this during a pandemic, 
where lots of people are working from home and the domestic demands on people is far greater than it was before. My 45-year-old friends would evaluate those factors as being more attractive. So that's something we want to keep in mind as well. But regardless of what it is, attraction is really important because that can be one of the elicitors or triggers of sexual desire. Can we influence attraction though? To a certain extent, right? So there are, let's say, if we're focusing more superficially on features of a partner, and I'll admit that in my clinical work with couples, this can be an uncomfortable place to go. The woman who says, you know, there are, let's, to be very frank, new smells, right? With age, we all, our bodies change, (laughs) the smells we give off change, (laughs) and sometimes we're not aware of that. And so it is the case that sometimes those can be potent blockers of sexual desire. My role as a sex therapist is to broadly talk about the role of smells, good smells, bad smells, and then gently bring it up. So in some cases, those can be changed, right? And in other cases, those features of attraction are much more more challenging to change. They say that love lasts three years, but life is more complex than that, for sure. And I have learned from you that initial sexual desire can last from a few months to a few years, but actually it will fluctuate over time throughout our lives. And I think that one of the biggest myths in our love life or of our love life today is that we need to be ready for and desire sex at all times, that it should be spontaneous desire or otherwise something is clearly wrong with us. And as we mentioned before, at the same time, one of the biggest challenges is to preserve desire in a long-term relationship. And this is a challenge and relationships are challenging and this is part of having a fulfilled relationship. Now, from your research, is there any suggestion? that can you know, we bring to our listeners when it comes to preserving desire in a long-term relationship? Yeah, that's a great question, Deanna, and, and a question that I frequently get asked. And I think it's important to tell your listeners, because this is uh, in part of our efforts to debunk desire myths, right? And there are so many myths that that permeate our society when it comes to sexual desire. One of them being what you've just stated, which is we have this innate craving for sex, this horniness, if you will. And when it's gone, it's gone. There's nothing we can do about it. And it turns out that the science does not support that. That description of what we call spontaneous desire, this desire that feels like it comes from the body. Sometimes people talk about it as being butterflies in their stomach is much more a common feature of new relationships, not related to a person's age, because you can be a 60 year old person in a new relationship and relate to those feelings of spontaneous desire. They very much are driven by the dopamine system in our brain. They are responsive to novelty and they're real and they're wonderful and beautiful when they happen and they feel really good. But what happens over time is as novelty goes down, we sort of shift into a different pattern of sexual desire. And rather than it being desire that is spontaneous and out of the blue, it's desire that is 
cultivated or responsive desire that emerges out of a sexual interaction. What we want to normalize and emphasize is that it is okay to go into a sexual encounter as long as it's consensual and agreed upon and you want to, but to go into it feeling rather neutral, not necessarily in the mood or not necessarily having a high level of sexual desire. But then over the course of the interaction, and here's where mindfulness becomes especially important because mindfulness is critical to allow us to stay present to tune into physical arousal response that's happening in the body, to look into a partner's eyes, to feel a partner's skin. And as the arousal, the physical response starts to kick in, if we can tune into that, if our brains and our body can be acting in unison and communicating with each other, that then opens up the opportunity for responsive desire. So desire that emerges after or in response to arousal. Can that be cultivated? 100%. We have shown that in our research. Others have shown that in their research. But again, the focus is on a different form of desire than that initial early stage of relationship spontaneous desire. While I was participating in the research in the study, this was one of my biggest takeaways, that a sexual encounter can start from a neutral place, and that's okay. Now, relationships are a two-way street. So working on oneself with mindfulness and with the exercises that you suggest, but there are two people in a relationship. And if both partners are willing to apply these techniques, now that has even more potential. How can be mindfulness incorporated within a couple? You know, Deanna, my next book is not going to have women on the title. It's going to say <laughs> for partners, because you're absolutely right that for the most part, we are talking about sex within the context of a relationship. More often than not, when women will report having low desire, it's only low relative to her partner's level of higher desire, right? So really what we're talking about is a discrepancy in her and a partner's level of desire. The truth is, is that she, if she was partnered with someone who had an equal level of desire as her, there'd be no problem, right? There would be no distress. So just circling back to the importance of emphasizing the relational context of this. Having said that, as you know, our groups, we have focused on women. So we have women coming to the groups. We teach the exercises to women. Many of the exercises she does on her own, first in a non-sexual context and then progressively in increasingly more sexual and body-focused context. And then gradually, we generalize the exercises to be used with a partner. My experience is that to have a partner who is willing and committed and excited about practicing alongside her, it is just a synergistic, it's like a one plus one equals three situation where you might have both working on their own awareness of their body sensations. And then when the two come together and make contact, there's awareness not only of your own body responses, but those points of contact between you and your partner. So the potential for awareness is so magnified. The hands, the bellies, the genitals, the eyes, the breath as well. So my book talks about some of those exercises. One of them 
sensate focus long predated my own writing and research of mindfulness for sexuality. Sensate focus, in fact, was developed in the 1960s by very famous sex researchers, Masters and Johnson. Now, they didn't describe it as mindfulness. What they described is a series of touching exercises that were designed to help one person um, as they were being touched by the other person, tune in, relax, provide non-judgmental feedback, all of the same components that we do in mindfulness, but they didn't describe it as mindfulness. In my own writing, I very much described this incredible partner-focused exercise as a mindfulness exercise. So long answer to your question, Deanna, but it absolutely can be used quite effectively within a couple. But not to discourage anyone, even if it's just on one partner, that already brings a lot of benefits. Lori, if you were to look back, is there a story of a patient that inspired or motivated or changed you or influenced your work significantly? Oh, there are so many, Deanna. And, you know, over the past 18 years of running these groups and also clinically, I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women, probably nearing thousands. I can remember so many of their stories and their faces so vividly because the story of sexuality and the story of a woman's intimacy and desire speaks to your soul. It really does. It's so powerful. One person in particular that I, I remember so vividly, and she's given me consent over the years to use her name. Her name was Viv in our group. And Viv was a woman who at the first group session said, this is not going to work for me. I already know that. I've tried everything. I'm only here really because I was curious and because you provide a small honorarium to the women who come. So I'm doing this to earn some extra cash. And Viv was so clear in her resistance to to this. But, you know, she was open enough to be committed to coming to all the eight sessions. We record our sessions over the eight groups, and we always ask women's consent to do that. And then we re-listen to them, and we extract different parts of the recordings that we can use for teaching purposes, etc. I've listened to Viv's participation over and over and over again. By the second session, she said, oh my God, I I don't know what kind of magic is in this body scan, but for the first time in my life, I have sensed sexual sensations in my body. I tried not to get too excited because it was we were working with a lot of resistance with Viv. Instead, I approached her with more curiosity and encouragement and said, "Oh, that, you know, that's interesting. Why don't we see where that goes and have an open mind and to watch her just blossom into this awareness that she didn't have to just go through the motions of sex while her brain was in a completely different place. And that, was, that had been her pattern of sex for her entire life. Now, she had also had quite a significant history of traumatic sexual experiences and sexual assault. So for the first time, she told us, she told me that she could show up for sex that it wasn't scary and dangerous. And in fact, that while she paid attention, she observed something new and wonderful in her body. And that just 
evolved over time over the eight weeks. So yeah, she's left quite an impact on me. And we do the research, the research ideas comes out of the stories that women share with us. It's not me and my research team sitting in a lab in a university coming up with ideas on our on our own, they directly derive from the experiences that women bring to us. So yeah, Viv definitely had a, had a big part in forming some of our, our research directions. Now you mentioned your daughter, your teenage daughter, and I have a question dedicated to parents out there. How do you educate your daughter to find, to accept, to explore, and to enjoy her sexuality, of course, in a safe and in a healthy and beautiful way? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Deanna. And I think it starts immediately. I think if you start to have these conversations when they're teenagers, it's too late. So from an early age, and the, and the research would definitely support this, is creating an atmosphere where they can ask any questions at all about their bodies, about attractions, about sexuality, and they should not be met with any degree of defensiveness or have the young person feeling like there's shame and embarrassment in interviewing women that I hear stories of them telling me, you know, they remember being on their bed and exploring their body and masturbating at the age of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you name it. And a parent walks in and scolds them and punishes them. And it sort of leaves them with feelings that to touch oneself and explore one's body is dirty and sinful and bad. So right from the earliest ages, and I'll admit as a parent, it can be pretty uncomfortable, pretty disconcerting to be sometimes be asked questions. Uh, my, I remember one of my sons at the age of three in the bath when he noticed that the water on his penis produced an erection at age three. And he had all sorts of questions and he was, you know, in, in such delight. He was squealing with delight that this was this little trick he had that water could make a part of his body grow. And I had to sort of set aside my horror at the thought of explaining erections to a three-year-old and normalize it and say, yeah, you know, our bodies respond to touch and stimulation and that's normal and that's healthy etc. My advice to listeners is when your child asks, if, if they're old enough to ask a question, they're old enough to hear the answer. And you as a parent can titrate how much of the answer you want to give them, but the child deserves an answer of some sort. And then continuing to embody that you are a safe person that they can talk to no matter what their question is about sexuality. They won't be punished for asking you. They won't be shamed for asking you. And this is something that we have to actively continue to enact in our parenting over time. Would you also be proactive? Yes. I also have our middle child has never asked any questions about puberty or sex or, you know, attractions. And so with him, we have to be proactive. And <laughs> so we find the right time. And sometimes we alternate myself and my husband. And so there are cases where if a child doesn't ask on their own, it is important that we be proactive. I think what we need to do to right now is also to share the best resources with our listeners where they can um, access this very valuable information and all these practical tools that we talked about. If you agree, we can start with a debunking desire campaign. We talked earlier, Deanna, about just the myriad myths that continue to drown us when it comes to sexuality, right? Sex needs to be spontaneous. You always need to feel desire. It always needs to feel good. You always need to have an orgasm. And these are myths. It's really important that the public, that people have accurate 
accurate information and access to accurate information about sexuality so that they can have realistic ideas of what to expect, about what sexual desire feels like, and importantly, when to intervene when desire becomes problematic for them. The challenge, however, is that the scientists who are doing the research on sex, on sexuality, rarely are successful in sharing their findings with the public. So it becomes really important to partner with the right people who have the right tools. A podcast, by the way, is an amazing way of taking the science and disseminating it, disseminating it out to large groups. My own team has created a campaign, a social media campaign called Hashtag Debunking Desire that is designed to share some of the latest research on women's sexuality with the public and with women in particular. And Deanna, you've been an amazing partner on that team, steering us along the way, helping us think critically about our message and who to speak to. And we have a website, debunkingdesire.com, our hashtag debunkingdesire we're using on all of our various social media platforms. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, through our UBC sexual health research handle to share the findings. So we created a short video that synthesizes some of the research findings. We've got lots of individual posts that take snippets of the research findings. And again, are intended really to share it with the public. So hashtag debunking desire for any of you, your listeners who are interested in checking it out. It's important to mention that everything is free. So it is all free. All free. Very mm-hmm. important. Exactly. So this is the idea that this information, which is valuable and can change women's and people's lives, is mm-hmm. made available to everyone. And the second thing I would like to mention, and I will uh, put it in the description, is the book Better Sex Through Mindfulness by Dr. Lori Brodo. And I love how Emily Nagoski, who is the author of Come As You Are, she describes it beautifully. It's simple, practical, science-based, and above all, overflowing with hope. <laughs> I will also She's so generous. I will also add a few other podcasts that you've been on, among others, the Approachable podcast. I find that there is a lot of great information that you shared there as well. I will also add your social media accounts, how people can follow you. Is there one last thought or message you would like to leave our listeners with? It's important to believe that one has the capacity for sexual pleasure and sexual desire, regardless of your age, your ethnicity, where you live in the world, what resources you have at hand, sexual desire and the capacity for sexual satisfaction and sexual pleasure. It transcends all of those things. I think that's a really important message to leave people with, again, because there is this prevailing myth that, you know, you have to be young and white and straight and in an outstanding relationship, and you have to have financial resources, and you have to be educated, and the, the list of ifs has to go, go on and on and on. None of those are true. None of those are supported by the science. Desire is something that can be cultivated regardless of any of those factors. And I know the podcast is focused on relationships, but many of the participants in our past uh, studies and groups have not been in relationships and have still benefited and experienced increases in their desire and pleasure as a result of mindfulness. I think that's one 
main finding, Deanna. And if I can sneak in a second one, which I I will anyways, (laughs) and that is that we all have the capacity for mindfulness. It's in our back pocket to be present and curious and non-judgmental. And it's unfortunately something that over time becomes buried with the demands of life and the feeling that we need to multitask. So we do need to dust off that skill in being present and being non-judgmental, but we all have that capacity. And so we should, uh, we should leverage that capacity. So I think that's a really important second message that listeners should be left with. To me, this was one of the most empowering things, knowing that I do not need to change my context. I just need to be more mindful, ultimately. And things are going to improve significantly, and they have. Thank you so much, Lori, for being in the podcast. This has been really insightful and we learned a lot today. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And again, thank you for the podcast because it's an important source of information for so many people. Dear friends listening, if there is anyone in your life who would benefit from all of this, please make sure that you share this podcast with them. Again, Lori, thank you for being in the Lofts podcast, for sharing such valuable information and for all the work that you do changing women's lives all over the world. Thank you everyone for listening to the Lofts podcast. I am your host, Diana, and I wish you live a life of thriving relationships. Make sure you follow the Lofts podcast and I'll talk to you soon. 